up and down the coast of California, from San Diego to Sacramento, from the Bay to the border, these are the young voices of the Golden State. This podcast tells their stories, the stories of men and women who are fighting for a voice in their communities and all over the country, who are working together in solidarity to rise up as one. From Fusion Media Group, this is The Brave. I'm your host, Felonius Monk, and together with reporters from Fusion's Rise Up, Be Heard youth journalism program, we're lifting up the stories of real people who are discovering strength and solidarity and common cause with one another. I am so excited to have this episode's guest, uh, Alicia Garza. She's an activist and writer living in Oakland, California. Throughout her life, she's fought for inclusion and against oppression on many fronts. But she's probably most well known as a co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement. We've had a lot of pushback around, um, well, why is it not all lives, right? Why aren't you fighting for everyone? And it's like, that just seems silly to me to even say, right? Right. Um, We're not trying to, and I've heard this before, so I want to bring it up. Um, Our goal is not to uh, uh, create black supremacy in response to white supremacy. That doesn't mark any kind of change, right? It just Mm -hmm. replaces one group in power with another group. Um, But it doesn't change the fundamental dynamics, which are that a group in power denies resources and agency to a group without power. So that's what we're actually trying to shift. Alicia sees an opportunity now for a generation of activists to dramatically reshape our world. And she's not waiting around for someone else to do it. Our Rise Up Be Heard reporter Aisha Davis met with Alicia recently about some of those plans. From early conversations I've had about social movements with people, I see that there is this debate between what's more effective in bringing change, whether it's... um, advocating for one marginalized group at a time or fighting for multiple issues at once. Um, Organizers and educators like you have been teaching people that intersectionality is what defines our multiple identities. So with you being a black queer woman, how has that positioned you within this debate and how has it informed your advocacy work? So a couple of things. These debates are age old. Um, Ever since... And this country was formed. People have been struggling around this question of how do we make change? And um, there's different narratives even about who are change makers and um, who needs to be placed in the forefront and what are the kinds of acceptable ways for us to um, make our grievances known, right, and get problems solved. And so um, I like to put things in that context because I think what we've learned over hundreds of years, right, is that you need all of it. And that really the the core question is how coordinated are you, mm-hmm. right, um, in your lane with other people who are doing things in their lane? Mm-hmm. And can you figure out things that you can work on together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when we approach it from that perspective, it allows for people to do what moves them and to give their best contribution without everyone feeling like they have to conform to one strategy, one approach, one way of being. And the reason I think that's important in the context of intersectionality, um, which is also a very 
um, old idea. And it is brought to us by black feminists um, as early as, uh, gosh, like 1950, right? Um, where uh, the Kambahi Collective in the 1970s talked about it as um, multiplicities, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Um, Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989 terms intersectionality as a way to understand power relationships, right? So it's a big fancy word that talks about how to place yourself on a spectrum of power. And um, what what Dr. Crenshaw and others have argued for generations is that intersectionality is a way for us to understand um, how to shape our movements in a way in which nobody gets left behind. And um, now the intersectionality is like a buzzword. People use it in all different kinds of ways that essentially boils down to diversity, which is not the right way to think about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, intersectionality is about making sure that you don't have to leave any part of yourself behind. And it's also um, a way to describe the way that power operates. So um, my experiences as a black queer woman are actually very different than the experiences of a black man. And it's because um, uh, the ways in which power is set up in our society, there's multiple ways in which I have privilege, and there's many ways that at the same time um, I'm oppressed. And so intersectionality just says, let's pull back the layers, right, and try to deeply understand Um, Why is it that black women are caught in the crosshairs of race oppression and gender oppression? And how does that make their experiences different than um, someone who um, may be gender oppressed but race privileged, right? So Mm -hmm. the experiences of white women are very different than the experiences of black women. And that's about power. And so that's all the intersectionality is saying. And so for me as a black queer woman, um, where I locate myself in those debates Um, is both fighting to be seen (laughs) inside of those conversations of social change because um, in black communities, many black communities, um, the the change makers are seen as black men, right? And um, black women are seen as um, either taking shine or focus away from the crises that are facing black men, um, or we're also seen as supports, but mm-hmm. not leaders. Mm-hmm. And so the way I come into this debate is to be like, hey, we're here too, right? <laughs> um, and you're not going to get free without us, mm-hmm. so don't try. <laughs> and then also, <clears throat> the way I come into this debate is to be able to say, um, because we have many different ways in which we are shaped by how power operates, mm-hmm. we cannot afford Right. We cannot afford to flatten our struggles. Well, are there any moments when organizing around issues where you feel it's appropriate to prioritize parts of your identity? And if not, do you ever feel pressured by other people to choose parts of who you are? Oh, my gosh. All the time. (laughs) I think it is important um, for various communities to be able to self-determine what is the best way to organize ourselves? Mm-hmm. Um, so is it appropriate to talk about black lives when black lives are being impacted in multiple ways? Yes, absolutely. And we also have to, at the same time, 
organize ourselves in such a way that we're not solely concerned with what is happening with black communities, that we're making connections between what's happening with black communities and South Asian communities who are being targeted under things like the Patriot Act, right? Um, and under xenophobia and racism that mirrors, right, um, some of the dynamics that we experience. We have to be able to understand how the struggles of black communities um, are in relationship to the struggles of indigenous communities, right? And we have to do the work to understand how power operates on other bodies, not just our own. And if we don't do that, then what's at stake is that we don't actually build the movement that we need to change the conditions that we live in. Um, and at the same time, I do think that why it's important for black people to be able to have our own space is because um, of the way that power moves. So uh, the way that blackness has been shaped in this country um, has been as a commodity, right? And it's something that everybody must have access to at every point in time. Mm -hmm. And that was true under chattel slavery. Um, it's been true under Jim Crow. It's been true under every era in history, right? That black people are positioned in such a way um, where our, our purpose, right, is to, um, to serve other people. And um, one of the things that I've noticed in this work is that when we try to create spaces for black people to talk to each other about things that we're grappling with, both between different types of black people and as a, as a diaspora, um, people get really offended. Like, well, why am I not, why do I not have access to those spaces? And I think we should place that question um, in the context of history and say, well, black people have always been commodified since we were brought here. And so um, part of what we also need to be able to break is this dynamic of um, unfettered access to black thought, black bodies, black space, black homes, black families, right? Mm. Um, when black people ourselves don't have unfettered access and control over our own lives. Um, so I say all that to say it's absolutely fine for people to self-organize in groups where the experiences are the same or similar. And it's important for us to remember that that's the first step and that the next step that we need to be doing sometimes simultaneously and sometimes after we've gotten our own stuff together is to be able to say now, how does this relate to the struggles of other communities and how can we lift up each other as opposed to um, doing the kind of crabs in a barrel thing um, that keeps us from living powerfully? This podcast is about solidarity and a lot of what goes on to that or a part of what goes into that is uh, how people can be allies for other groups, uh, communities, and um, causes. Mm -hmm. So when people ask you how could they be an ally for Black Lives Matter, what do you usually say? Um, I find it to be a weird question, actually, um, because I just I don't understand the framework of allyship. It just kind of doesn't mean anything to me. Um, for me what it means to show up for someone and fight for them, fight next to them, have their back, their front, their sides, is not being an ally. It's like, mm -hmm. that's in your interest, right? It's like what you need to do to survive. And I think if we looked at it in that way, um, solidarity would look much different. So, um, you know, part of how I think we understand social change in this country 
has a lot to do with um, charity-based models, right? And it's, what can I do for somebody less privileged than me? And usually what that involves is like giving some money, right? It's like very transactional. And allyship in the way that we've constructed it feels transactional to me. Um, I don't want allies, right? Like I want people who are like, your fight is my fight, right? And so I get just as indignant when you're not around as when you are around, right? Mm. Because it's, it's me. Like I see myself in there. Um, and that's how I feel, right? So um, there was a, a doctor a year ago. He might have been Vietnamese who was beaten and dragged off of a, an airplane. Um, and it was some weird dispute about the seat. And then they, the airline was overly aggressive in dealing with this, with this man. Uh, I was incensed. Like me personally, I was incensed because I knew that could be me, right? Like I knew that could be me. And I was one of the only people, black people that I saw talking about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I heard a lot of people saying things like, well, why should black people show up for Asian folks when Asian folks aren't showing up for us? And I'm like, that's not how this works, right? Um, Our understanding should be um, that maybe not everybody is coming, but right is right and wrong is wrong, Mm -hmm. right? And so for me, that is what solidarity is. It's like, right is right, wrong is wrong. And when you see another person or community experiencing injustice or disenfranchisement or oppression or just things that are wrong, like if that doesn't do something in the pit of your stomach and move you to act, um, you need to check in with yourself, mm-hmm. right? Um, do the work to learn about the experiences of other communities. Listening goes a long way, a long way. And while you have a very specific set of experiences, I don't need to take those from you in order to be able to connect with what you dream about and what you long for. And in fact, knowing all of your complexities makes me want to fight for you, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. It makes me want to fight for us. Um, And that's how I think solidarity is built, honestly. Um, And it's also why I don't like allyship. Mm. Now, how long have you been working with the National Domestic Workers Alliance? Forever. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been working at the National Domestic Workers Alliance since 2013. Okay. It was actually, I started there um, just a few months before I started Black Lives Matter. The National Domestic Workers Alliance is... Um, one of the largest organizations representing nannies, house cleaners, and um, elder caregivers. And um, we fight for rights, dignity, and respect um, for millions of women who um, clean homes, take care of other people's kids, um, and care for the people who we care for the most, but um, are excluded or exempted from many of the labor protections that all workers deserve. Um, And that is a result of a racist compromise between Southern lawmakers and union leaders during the New Deal that excluded farm workers and domestic workers from most federal labor protections um, because they were black and brown and women. (laughs) And so um, 
we are fighting to undo that legacy and um, not just to build a floor, right, but to reimagine an economy that is really based on care. And um, every eight seconds in this country, somebody turns 65. We have an incredible need and demand for care as um, the country ages. Um, and there's not enough um, trained workers to support um, the aging um, crisis that this country is approaching very rapidly. So part of our work is also very much about making sure that um, we close that gap between generations, that we honor um, people in our lives who we love and care for who are aging and make sure that they have the resources and supports they need to age with dignity. And um, our work is also very much about building a powerful intersectional women's movement um, that can turn the tide on generations of BS. <laughs> and my role there is the strategy and partnerships director. And what that means is that I do a lot of work around figuring out how domestic workers can be a central part of a larger movement for social change. Mm -hmm. Most black people born in the United States have somebody in their lineage that did domestic work. So um, my grandmother did domestic work. My mom did domestic work. And that's true for most folks. So mostly we hear like, what is a domestic worker? And the reason that we hear that so often is because um, these are women who work in private homes. And so they're largely out of sight. Um, and that is where there is incredible danger of exploitation and violence and abuse. Um, on top of uh, a reason why there's a justification for not including domestic workers in labor protections, because it's seen as work that women are supposed to do, and in particular, women of color. I saw the on Twitter the campaign that you and the Black Future Lab sent out, um, wanting to survey 200,000 black people. And I took the survey myself. Yes. Um, I'm think? getting, I thought it was dope. <laughs> awesome. I'm getting my roommate to take it and yes. other people I know. Can you let uh, everyone know what the purpose of this initiative is more in detail and give background about what sparked the idea? Yeah. So the Black Futures Lab is a vehicle to experiment with different ways to figure out how to get black communities living powerfully. And um, the way that we talk about ourselves is that we have a goal of transforming black communities into constituencies that build power in cities and states. And a constituency is um, a group of people who <clears throat> impact and influence elected officials and policy and that's what we are trying to do is mm. to impact how democracy functions and to make sure that black people are helping to shape that um, in our interests. And so the Black Census Project is aiming to, I mean, we're not aiming, we're going to do it. <laughs> we're doing it right now, um, <laughs> is talking to 200,000 black people across the country um, in diverse communities about what we care about, what we want, what we dream about, and what our experiences are. And the goal of that is to be able to paint a different picture of who black communities are 
and to have that picture then shape policy and legislation and um, governments um, who right now are operating under a very flat, one-dimensional vision of who black people are and are not. We know in our communities that um, what's happening in Oakland, for example, is really different than what's happening in rural places in Alabama. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, even though we may all be black, we're having different experiences, and that should matter in terms of um, how policies are being shaped. Um, Black people are also immigrants, right? And um, right now, a lot of our conversation about immigration is not really capturing what's happening to black people under that system, right? And so part of um, what we really hope to do with the census project um, is to really capture the complexity of black life and to use those stories to shape um, the rules that determine our quality of life and our ability to take care of our families and ourselves. And the survey itself um, was designed from an idea that we had like three years ago to do a survey about the Black Lives Matter movement. But as we started kind of kicking things around and politics and the political situation in this country started to expand and unfold, um, we realized that we actually needed to go much bigger than the BLM movement and that we really needed to get a better sense outside of our activist circles of like what black people care about. (laughs) Um, Because my grandma, for example, would say things like, you fools in the streets, you know what I mean? And what you need to be doing is X, Y, and Z. And actually those folks need to be included as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> we came up with the questions basically by asking people, what what are the things that we need to do to capture the complexity of black life? Yeah, like one of my favorite questions was, um, do you consider these members a part of these groups, a part of the black community. Mm-hmm. And it had African-Americans, Afro-Latinos, mm-hmm. people from the Caribbean, people mm-hmm. from Haiti. Mm-hmm. And um, you can like say which one you, which ones you describe as the black community. And there's also an option that says none of these people are a part of the black community. So that was actually one of mm-hmm. my favorite questions because I don't think there is a clear um there's a clear sense about who we consider to be black and who's mm-hmm. non-black. Mm-hmm. So this was the first time there was actually someone to ask the question. Yeah. I yeah. loved that question too. Yeah. Cause how do we impact policy and bring people along if we don't know how people are understanding the scale or scope of the problem or whether there is a problem. So right now with black folks and immigration reform, um, the Trump administration is messaging to black American communities about immigration reform and framing it in such a way where the idea is that Mexicans are coming to the United States and taking jobs away from black people. Well, the scale of immigration is so much bigger than that. Um, the, The geographic scope of immigration is so much bigger than that. And a lot of people don't know that black people are also migrants, right? And so... Does that change people's perception around what they think immigrants deserve? Um, Does that change people's perception of why people are having to leave their homes and their families in order to come to the U.S. and what they're coming for? 
but also um, does it help or hurt in terms of making sure that black people feel deeply connected to that struggle and that fight? Um, and as long as it's um, being pitted uh, or painted as a, a jobs and economic security issue in a way that is painted as somebody's taking something from you that they didn't earn, um, we're not going to make much progress, right? So um, we have to work on that, and we have to make sure that black people don't get swept up in the xenophobic narratives around immigration and immigrants. Um, and we also have to make sure that black people are a strong part of the coalition um, that is pushing for um, making sure that families stay together and that um, that all people have a right to live with dignity here in the United States. So back in the studio with the sexiest man in podcasting, I'm Felonious Monk. Here's the thing about the work that she's doing with the census and making sure that we kind of tear down this idea of blackness as a monolith. We're not even talking about fighting stereotypes anymore. What we're talking about is this real visibility. And when I heard the sentence, Black Lives Matter, it meant more to me than a rallying cry for uh, people who had been victims of police brutality. What it said to me as a young black guy who had grown up explaining and trying to defend his humanity was that I no longer had to do that, that my life had value just because I existed. So if Alicia Garza had never done anything else outside of that, she would be worthy of her own episode and probably a series of episodes. But she's done so many more things, and we are all grateful to her for that. Uh, Special thanks again to our Rise Up reporter, Aisha Davis, for her amazing work on this story. And thank you guys for listening again to The Sexiest Man in Podcasting, Felonious Monk. The Brave Podcast is a project of Fusion Media Group in partnership with the California Endowment. The Rise Up Be Heard program manager is Jacob Seamus. The show is produced by Raghu Manavalan. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. And Fusion's executive director of audio is Mandana Mofidi. Special thanks to Fusion Stephen Keppel and Marcelo Rodriguez of the California Endowment and to AudioLink LA Studios in Los Angeles, California. You can find out more about the incredible men and women featured on this podcast in the show notes of this episode. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Next up on the podcast... There is a social construction of what a Muslim looks like and where they are perceived to come from. And so one of my biggest objectives is to humanize Muslim women, but also to take away this idea that they're foreigners, because the vast majority of Muslims in this country are born, natural born citizens. Don't miss it. Seriously, subscribe so you won't miss it, okay? And I'm Felonious Monk. I'll see you next time. Yep, 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 y